You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Guidepost. My name is Willie Goldsmith, and I'm the Executive Director of the American Saltwater Guides Association. Today, we're thrilled to have with us Dr. Andy Danilchuk. Andy is a professor of fish conservation at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So welcome, Andy. Hey, Willie. Nice to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be on the podcast. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. It's um, it's amazing that uh, that we've made it this far without having a science podcast. So we're uh, we're thrilled to have you on here. I think this will be a, a pretty interesting and exciting one for folks to listen to. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, any specific fish or anything about biology. We're really talking about, you know, fisheries and fisheries management and in particular the role of technology, which I know is something that a lot of folks, um, you know, are encountering more and more every day um, with, you know, everything from uh, new tools for finding fish to logging your catch. Um, you know, there's just a lot out there um, that can have pretty big implications for for both, you know, fishermen and managers as they, they try to navigate uh, this new landscape. So, you know, before we get into it and, and talk about the great research that you've been doing, I uh, was wondering, Andy, if you could just give us a little bit of background, you know, tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um so I, I grew up uh, just outside of Toronto uh, in Canada, in Ontario, and uh, spent my formative years uh, fishing for bass and pike um, in uh, around Georgian Bay um, with a best friend from, from childhood. And I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, spend a lot of time with his family in uh, Captive Island or on Captive Island in Florida, um, fishing for redfish and snook and sea trout. And so I had my first taste of, of saltwater fishing back then. Um, and at, because I you know, sort of gravitated to fishing and, you know, fishing, you know, sort of kept me out of trouble and gave me something to focus on. I, I also tried to you know, steer my career towards something that I loved and, and, um, during my undergraduate and my master's all focused on fish and fish ecology. Um, and, and a lot of it was also, uh, in sort of this determination of, of trying to figure out how we can um you know do a better job of taking care of these these fish and fisheries um especially you know growing up around the great lakes they you know back in the in the 70s it was pretty much a cesspool um and uh you know it it, it I, I was faced with this dichotomy of like i love to go fishing and that but then there here's all these polluted fish um and so how do we reconcile that and so you know my career kind of continued to focus on fish a lot uh, finished my PhD at University of Alberta, uh, and then right after that, um, as any good Canadian will do, uh, I made my way to the Turks and Caicos Islands um, and worked down there for a couple of years and uh, started to do research on bonefish. And uh, that sort of um, broadened my horizons a bit about like um, how um, so many people are attracted to targeting saltwater fish and, uh, you know, and, and as an angler, I was pretty inspired. It was awesome to catch my first bonefish on a, on a fly rod, on a fly that I tied myself. But then, you know, I put my scientist hat on and was like, how much do we know about bonefish? And how much do we know about how uh, anglers interact with bonefish and the outcome of that interaction? And, and so, um, and at that point in time, this was back in the in early 2000s, it was like not very much. 
And so I, I recognized that there was this void and um, made my way up to Luther in the Bahamas where I um, started the Cape Luther Institute. Um, and that's where sort of Steve Cook, who's a co-author on this, uh, the lead author actually on this tech paper, uh, we started spending a lot more time together, hanging out and doing research on on bonefish and sharks and barracuda and, and really started to think more about taking a scientific approach to understanding, um, you know, what goes into how anglers interact with fish and how can we minimize um, the out or minimize the impacts um, so that when you're releasing a fish, it's, uh, you know, it, it's swimming away to be caught another day or function in the ecosystem, you know, and, and hopefully maintain those populations of fish that we, we like to target. Um, and then made my way up to, to UMass Amherst um, and I've uh, been here for about 10 years, maybe a little bit more. Um, and that again, helped me sort of broaden my horizons again and started to work um, outside of the tropics um, and on lots of different um, recreationally targeted species. Um, and also, get involved a lot in, uh, in the industry. Um, so, um, you know, I've, for a while I've, I've played a role on the science and policy committee for the American fly fishing trade association. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a bonefish and tarpon trust research fellow. Um, I'm, you know, lucky enough to be a, you know, fly fish ambassador for Patagonia. So I, I, I kind of understand, um, the, you know, as an angler, I understand the motivations about why, why we fish and why we get so excited about it. Um, you know, I sort of understand the, the industry side a bit. And I understand also the management and conservation and science side. So, um, and that brings us to, you know, <laughs> this conversation and, and the paper about like emerging technologies and, uh, and how do we keep up, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how, um, you know, as anglers, we get sort of enamored by the technology that we see and, um, and I do too. It's like, wow, it's like a, a shiny new thing that can help us, uh, fish better. uh, but then we really sort of need to uh, think a little bit more carefully about what that means for the fish and, and, and managing fish stocks. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Andy, thanks for the, uh, thank, you know, thanks for kind of giving us some background. I mean, you've got quite the rap sheet, uh, having done, uh, an incredible array of stuff all around the world. Um, and you know, I, I've got to ask, right. You've fished for everything everywhere. I feel like, you know, through, that's one of the great things about being a fishery scientist, especially on the rec, on the rec side is all the opportunities you're afforded and just kind of wondering, you know, if, if you weren't with me on this podcast right now, if you could be out there fishing for anything anywhere, you know, what, what's your pick, you know, what's your favorite? Uh, for some reason, I always gravitate back to bonefish, um, you know, in terms of just being grounded, like waiting on these miles of flats and, um, you know, feeling that connection to their environment, um, you know, feeling the way that, that you have to intercept the fish. Um, and I don't know, it's just, I think it's because it was the first fish I caught on a fly rod, you know, like that, I always go back to that. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, there are other wonderful species that I've targeted. Um, you know, now I've got this project on, on giant trevally in the Seychelles and man, it's awesome to catch a GT on a fly, you know? And, um, but the, I think, Bonefish would kind of be my staple um, to go back to, um, but I think based on my experiences, all fish have this a, a unique characteristic in terms of, you know, how we target them, how they fight, um, and it provides a bit of a lens in terms of in ter into their environment, um, and it also provides a bit of a lens into the recreational fisheries that target them, that focus on them, you know. So I think that's where 
you know, we'll eventually get to the tech paper that, you know, some of the, some of the don't necessarily, that we review in the paper don't necessarily apply to each species that we may target, right? So there's, there's some of this sort of popcorn effect that, you know, drone fishing might not necessarily um, apply to when you're going to fish for trout in New England main streams, right? Like, cause that just, the application just doesn't match. Um, but other technologies do, right? So it's, um, so it, it goes back to your question though. I think um, the, uh, it's, it's a, to me, it's hard to have a favorite fish. Um, and, but if I had to go back to one, I think for some reason I always gravitate to, to bonefish. So. Yeah, honestly, that was a pretty unfair question. Cause I feel like a, a golden rule is, you know, don't ask people questions that, that you don't want to be asked. And I'm, I'm kind of with, I'm in the same boat as you are. So I, I fully appreciate it, but I'm, I, uh, I also understand, you know, with bonefish and I guess, you know, to the point, I mean, that's one fishery where maybe technology does not have quite as much of an impact, you know, thinking about, you know, all the different aspects. Of course, there's always ways to evolve and, and think of creative new ways to catch fish, but it's interesting to hear it. That's, you know, the kind of that, that intimate, you know, flats, flats fishing for bones is one of your, one of your favorites. Um, so let's pop to this paper, you know, you and Steve and this army of researchers put together this, put together this beast of a review paper, uh, that, that came out, I, I think last year in reviews in fish biology and fisheries, uh, it's entitled Techno technological innovations in the recreational fishing sector implications for fisheries management and policy. Uh, that is a big topic. Uh, I think one that no matter what you're, you know, how, how educated you are in fishery science, if you're in, at all involved in the fishing community, it's something that crosses people's minds, right? Cause you're constantly seeing this, you know, this new proliferation of technology. And I'm just wondering, you know, what made you guys decide that kind of now was the time for this sort of review paper, you know, to really do it, to step back and think about how have things changed over the years compared to 20 or 30 years ago that have really, you know, changed the landscape of how we target fish recreationally. Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. And, and I think there's a number of different points that feed into that question. Um, one is that, you know, uh, as, as anglers and as scientists and as fish nerds, you know, Steve and I and other co-authors in that paper, we're always sharing emails or sending texts. I'm like, have you seen this? Have, have you like, did you see this on YouTube? Like, or, you know, on social media? And it's like, you know, the new next bait that you can plug a USB port into and charge. So it wiggles and it has a light and it's just like, holy crap. Like, you know, it, it, and over the past, you know, five or six years, I would say that the frequency by which we are sharing all these different innovations with each other is, is increasing. Um, and, you know, so one, I, I think there's just a, a, a bigger proliferation of, of last, you know, maybe 10 years, but it's accelerating. Um, I feel it's accelerating. Um, it's probably, and it's also accelerating, I think faster than, um, you know, the science, um, and managers, scientists and managers can keep up with, right? So, you know, there's this rate of change where you've got all this tech coming online, whether it's like, you know, new fish finders or new scented baits or new apps. Um, and, you know, those things keep coming online and the, you know, in an ideal world, you know, we would take it a scientific approach to kind of evaluate what these new techs, this, this tech would have on, on encounter rates, catch rates, if the fish are being released, what does that mean? Um, and, uh, but, but the, we're at a point now where this, you know, we, we can't, 
the funding isn't available, the army of scientists isn't available to keep up with all these technological innovations. And so uh, I think that's where we've, we finally, and you know, Steve as the ringleader um, on the paper as the, as the lead author, you know, he, he kind of circled the wagons of, of a bunch of us that have these conversations and said, you know, it's, it's time to do this review paper to, um, to broaden awareness, right? To, to bring it out there and to pull a lot of uh, what the potential challenges are and maybe also identify the things we need to focus on uh, first in terms of the science. And then how do we also make sure that we're bringing in managers and policymakers at the same time? Um, because not all of the tech is the type of stuff that you can regulate or control very easily. Um, and so, you know, that's where um, we almost have to do a triage to figure out, you know, based on this you know, smattering of all this different technology, you know, what are the things that we need to focus on first to prioritize? And then what is that? And, and, and how do we do that? How do we fund the research? And then how, do we, how does that feed into policy and management? Awesome. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I think having seen kind of these, you know, these huge changes, right? I mean, I think about like braided line and gulp and sort of these, you know, these completely kind of new approaches to fishing. And it's I think the part of the paper that I thought was really interesting was when you guys talk about, you know, the innovators and then the early adopters and kind of the different, you know, generations of people. I think I definitely am one of the uh, late majority or laggards. I, uh, I don't like to jump on the bandwagons of these new things. I know my, uh, my, my brethren up in New England feel the same way. I remember being on party boats as a kid and everybody's saying, no spider-wire, no spider-wire. Because, you know, any braid would tangle and it would be a big mess. And now you go on any of those boats and, you know, to see a boat, see a rod and reel with mono on it is like, you know, you're like, oh, what is that person doing? So it's really been phenomenal to see those kinds of evolutions. And obviously, you know, we're focusing here on the rec sector. Uh, a lot of the technology... You know, not not all of it, but um, a lot of it is also applicable to the commercial side. And I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit, you know, why did you guys, um, you know, why is this a particular challenge um, or something to think about on the rec side and not just kind of thinking about technology and fisheries as a whole? Yeah, no, awesome question. And and I, you know, I, I you know, at UMass, I, I initially start by doing this compare and contrast between, you know, recreational fisheries and commercial fisheries. And a, one thing that it, it quickly becomes uh, apparent is the fact that, you know, rec, recreational anglers are way more dispersed, right? They're, they're, you know, from high mountain streams to big lakes to the ocean. They're, they're not always pulling their catch in if they're harvesting to specific, you know, docks where the catch can be quantified. Um, you know, there, there isn't the same amount of uh, regulatory or, or scrutiny in terms of what's, what's being used, what's being caught. Um, you know, like, yes, on some lakes and some places there, you know, you'll have a conservation officer doing a creel census at the dock, but they don't ask you like, so what did you catch it on? They don't say, oh, did you use a, you know, a, a, a power bait? You know, like they don't, what power bait did you use? Like, they don't ask you those things generally. Um, and so I think the challenge with, and this is that big difference between rec fishing and, and commercial fishing when it comes to tech is that it's so spread out. It's so, um, and it's, it may be a lot more accessible, um, to the every, I mean, you go to Walmart and you can buy a fish finder, right. And you can, um, and you know, and that might increase your chances of, you know, catching dinner or your target species or whatever. And, 
um, there's there's no control over that, right? And so, and there's nobody that's going to inspect your, um, if you put it on your fishing boat, your, the Coast Guard's going to come and they're not going to inspect your fish finder. They're going to make sure you have your life jacket and your your registration and you know so it, it's it's a it's a very different context in terms of how tech is is used and um and scrutinized and regulated so. yeah that's a good point of course there's also there's a lot more of us right on the rec side and i think just thinking about yeah. fisheries management in general you know and you've just got this huge and as you said you know diffuse population of people out there uh it's a lot harder to keep track of what's going on and i think certainly i learned a lot in looking through this paper and really understanding you know how much has evolved and kind of what what technology is now out there you know whether again it's in learning how to find fish and you know what you're using in terms of hooks or baits or line uh and then of course you know electronics in terms of staying on those fish and, and being able to share information on social media there's just so much out there um that can really i think you know, flatten the learning curve, right? For better or for worse. And that can have huge impacts on catchability and thinking about, you know, how many fish are being caught in a given, you know, at a given time. But, and, and it's not, and it's not even the fish that are being targeted, right? It's the bycatch. It's the things, it's the non-target species that you're also intercepting potentially because of the, the new tech. Um, and so it's, it, we need to think about it from a, a much broader, I mean, and, and obviously with commercial fishing, you get bycatch, but the bycatch is a little different, um, or it can be. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that um, the, the, the accessibility of the tech is one thing, um, and the very high participation rates and, dif and dis dispersed partition rate, participation, uh, partici uh, parti and the dispersed participation rates um, make it challenging. Um, and, um, and so I, I think that that's, why this this paper exists and in the paper you know you talk about obviously as we've discussed a, a huge array of specific technologies and just wondering you know as you guys put this together was there anything that really stood out to you as like the big game changer you know like what do you think or you know is, is there one or two you know huge really revolutions in, in recreational fisheries technology that uh that, that you really you know see coming up over and over again yeah, for for me, I find I was I was really taken back by the amount of um, you know the number of apps and social media and the things that are evolving um, to you know highlight where things are being caught, when things are being caught, the size of fit. Like to me, that's that's accelerating and doing two things. One, it's uh, potentially sharing locations. It's creating more competition, perhaps. Um, it's, uh, to me, that sort of that, the backend tech, um, is, uh, it, it is, is a bit of a game changer and it's, um, you know, every, you know, every couple of weeks we see a new app pop up or somebody's developing a new way to help anglers, um, glorify or, or be proud about what they're doing. Um, and, and obviously I, I fish and I get it. Like, I understand that. Um, but we don't necessarily understand the implications of how these social networks and revealing all this changes where angling occurs, how much pressure we put on fish. Um, the other one that um, I, I think Steve and I shared a lot of uh, <laughs> emails about were these modern day forward facing fish scanners uh, where it's like, there's one video on YouTube that sticks in my mind and it seriously looks like a video game. There's two people on the front of a boat. They have screens 
It's so high resolution. You can see the size of the fish. You can see where the fish is. You can see the bait as it's being casted out. You can tell if the bait's too far this way, if it's too far down, you can see how the fish is reacting. And it's all in real time. It's like a video game on your phone when you're, you know, there's all these great video games on your phone for fishing, but it's that the reward is actually intercepting that, you know, a, a real fish. Um, and, you know, and I see that, I see that uh, as a bit of a challenge, but also maybe anglers can also be more selective. And I don't know, like, I, I think that we took, a we took a, a stance in this paper talking about, you know, these things that we need to be aware of in terms of monitoring and regulating and understanding impacts on. Um, but I also think that maybe there might be a place for some of this tech, if we can use it in a, in a good way to, to also minimize impacts. I'm not sure where we are yet and we need to test that, right? And this is like going back to like this being a review paper and it basically, what it did is allow us to sit there and and put a chart on the on the wall and go, okay, here's all the things that we need to kind of evaluate, you know, or the, over the rest of our careers and other people's careers and work with managing or, you know, managers and state agencies to, to figure out how we're going to um, effectively evaluate some of these technologies, um, both they're good and they're bad in terms of how they're influencing fish and their populations and fishing in general. Got it. And yeah, for sure. I mean, the social media piece is just huge. I mean, you think about, you know, the real time reports, right? It's like, oh, there are Kobe at the Bay Bridge or Bluefin off the Cape or whatever. Just, you know, you're if you're in cell range or, you know, sometimes even if you're not, if you have a Wi-Fi connection, um, you know, you're getting that info in real time and it really just changes the dynamic. And it's been really interesting, at least for me to kind of see um, you know, individual people kind of conflicted, right? Because on the one hand, they want to share these awesome fish they caught. And on the other, it's like, you know, do you really want to publicly share, um, you know, in this one area and basically potentially blow it up and have a bunch of people there? And obviously that's each individual's choice, but it's it's been pretty interesting to see how that's how that's evolved. And I guess, you know, we I had asked kind of what do you view as the biggest game changer fishery-wide? Obviously, you fish too, right? You're out there all the time. Yeah. Has there been anything for you in particular that you've really leaned on um, and taken advantage of kind of, you know, over the past, you know, couple of years that's really kind of changed the way you approach fishing? Um, you know, for me, I mean, my my fishing style has kind of evolved a little bit and I I've, I've tend to lean a bit more over into fly fishing these days. Um, I still fish conventionally. Uh, and when I do go out and fish for largemouth baths and stuff like I'm not opposed to putting on a nice scented worm, you know, like, and, and look, and, and thinking about how that will actually increase my catch rates. Um, so I think a lot of the scented baits are things that, you know, I, I have some in my basement, I'm not going to lie. Right. Um, and, um, that, you know, and I think that's fun from a fishing standpoint and it, it like increases my chances or my son's chances to catch a, a nice big largemouth bass. You know, but then I also, then I stop, right? And this is where I like that, that inward facing introspective thing. And I'm like, all right, it's a hunk of plastic. Oh, uh, you know, if we're supposed to be kicking plastic. Feel uh, a little icky, right? If yeah. I lose this worm <laughs> in the environment or the fish ingests it. And do we actually know what's in that scent? Was it really biodegradable? Like how do we, you know, and and then, you know, I, this is what I remember growing up, right? When I bass fish and I wait for the bass pro catalog to come, right? And it was like the physical thing. And like flipping through, like, oh, like circling. It was big, giant thing. Like big, giant, meaty catalog that weighed like five pounds. Yeah, yeah. Rubs and power baits and all these new lures and like circling things. Um, 
and 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 then you know as i've as i've matured as an angler and also have the scientist hat on i'm like holy crap look at all these things that bait companies coming out with that um they don't have to there's there's not a lot of regulations that say you need to test what this scent formula thing in this bait is going to do to the environment you know like um there's um Steve and I have a, a, a PhD student that's working on you know, live well additives, you know? So like all these live well additives are out there that use for bass tournaments. Um, do we know what's in them? Are they required to have a label on the back? Like if you're going up to your fridge to look at something that you're gonna ingest, you need a label, right? There's, there's controls related to consumer, you know, food items. Um, but we don't we don't know what's in them there we don't know that the, the tackle manufacturers aren't required to do any sort of systematic evaluations um to uh to demonstrate that they're not having any harm on the fish or harm on the environment um and so that's you know a lot of times um sort of predecessor to this paper or, or before this paper um you know a lot of the questions that um that Steve and I uh, would um, address is that, uh, or we'd get a lot of questions um, from anglers and guides about, you know, what does this tool do on fish, for fish? You know, should I be using this or should I be using that? And then we pool together our resources some way, shape or form, um, and we find a way to do a study on it, right? Um, and so when we go back and we look at all of the, um, the tech and toys and everything that's out there, um, that's when we get a little overwhelmed, right? We, we can't test everything. And so now we do that triage. Um, we look at, um, you know, the, the increase in, um, participation rates and where that's happening, right? COVID during COVID, you know, recreational angling is like the sport of the pandemic, right? Or one of the new sports. Um, so all of a sudden we have lots of people entering um, the recreational fishery, whether it's freshwater or saltwater. Um, and, you know, are a lot of those anglers being introduced to a lot of this tech. And so there's less of a curve. It's all of a sudden there's an app and all of a sudden there's a new power bait and, all, and it's maybe not as expensive um, as it used to be um, because it could be old stuff to other anglers, but new stuff to them, right? Um, and so it's 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 it is complex, and I think that's you know really bringing it back to the nature of this paper was trying to provide a roadmap of the things that um, from from the tech side of what's out there, um, questioning um, how it might potentially impact or influence um, fish populations and, and individual fish themselves. Um, and then uh, putting it out there that maybe there are some ways that um, uh, scientists need to work more um, directly with managers and policymakers and tackle manufacturers, you know, to, to figure out how we can evaluate these, um, these tools and innovations that are being developed um, with the, under the broader, broader umbrella of like long-term sustainability of fish stocks. 
Right. And let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. Cause I think it's a really good point. Cause just like for fishermen, right. Where you can do this technology is kind of a double-edged sword because it's helping you individually, but it's also, you know, potentially ending up putting a lot more pressure on where you like to fish, you know, from a management perspective, my understanding is that it's pretty similar, right? There are, you know, are obvious challenges that, that technology might be, might bring, but there are potentially some big benefits too. Right. And so kind of curious to hear your thoughts on like, you know, where do you view the impacts of these kinds of technolo- technological innovations from a management perspective? And again, as you said, trying to ensure that long-term sustainability and, and make sure we have yeah. fish in the water moving I, forward. I think one of the biggest impacts from a management perspective is that even if you can deem a particular technology uh, or bait or something to have uh, an impact, um, you know, is it an impact on one species, but not another, right? Um, and is it an impact um, that is just focused on individual fish, but we can't demonstrate or we haven't been able to demonstrate how that affects fish populations, like cascading up from individual level effects to the population. Um, and I think from a, from a management perspective, ultimately, it's it, we eventually want to have some sort of control or influence about how these things are used. But going back to our earlier part of our discussion, the recreational angling community is so dif- dispersed. You know, are you going to, are you really going to go into every tackle box? Is a, is a conservation officer going to go into every tackle box and go, you know, are they going to have this big spec sheet and go, okay, now I know, and you know, now we're seeing a lot of use of mandatory use of circle hooks, right? In along the East coast for striped bass, if we're using bait. Now that's, you can say, okay, I'm going to inspect for circle hooks, but then if there are other things that we try to mandate in, in terms of, or control their use, you know, is it going to be like, okay, are you using circle hooks? Are you using this side circle hooks? Are you using this kind of bait? Are you using this? Are, like, it's, it's going to be really difficult um, to come up with um, ways to enforce or police all these different technologies if we're finding that they're having an impact and so that's where you know i often you know i spent a lot of time sort of in in the grassroots conservation world and and thinking about um you know voluntary actions you know is there you know and you and i know how fast changing and changes in regulations happen um and uh you know so maybe at some point if we can identify um that there are potential threats to fish based on some of these technologies. Maybe it takes more of a, a change in social norms and the social movement um, to to sort of self-police or self-enforce um, before there's ever a point where regulations have to change. Um, and uh, and so I think um, and I think this is where we often get sidelined with um, the rate at which a lot of these technologies develop. Right. Like if if we have a, if, if you know, if we get approached as as people that focus on um, evaluating tools for recreational fisheries, if we get approached in the development phase of a particular tool or scent or bait, then we can evaluate it and help the manufacturers um, create something that still effectively catches fish um, that would make anglers happy and shareholders happy, you know, would also potentially minimize the impacts that we're leaving on those fish and their and their populations but that doesn't rarely happen occasionally i think steve and i have both been approached at some point 
um, about, you know, from a net manufacturer and saying, you know, asking us, and then we're signing non-disclosure agreements and all that stuff about like the nets and the value, like it's, it gets messy because we also have to remember like it's commerce, right? That these, these angling companies, these manufacturers, you know, they see that, you know, if they can create a better way to catch fish and their customers that buy their products, catch more fish, they're going to sell more stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and I understand that, you know, I understand the, the role of commerce and all this um, and the fact that, you know, recreational angling, you know, across the United States or globally, it's, it's huge in terms of participation rates. It fuels local economies. Um, and so it's important to understand the, the value of recreational fisheries and put this tech into context. Um, but I think it's still deserving, though, to look um, very um, carefully at how these technologies, maybe we could also look at which ones are maybe more easily enforced than others. Um, you know, drone fishing, for instance, um, you know, if it's, it, you know, if you go to Cape Cod now and you try to fly a drone, you know, lots of people, because of privacy issues, you, there's actually local ordinances. You can't even fly a drone. People still do. Um, but you know, whether you're flying a drone to find pods, of, you know, striped bass on Brewster flats or something, um, you know, you might be able to get away with it once or twice, but you know, if somebody doesn't like that seeing the drone from a privacy issue, you know, you could get a ticket and, and, or whatever, get a drone taken away. So, um, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of, um, things that we need to evaluate and do that triage in terms of what's going to have the biggest, uh, the things that we can focus on, um, in the short term. Um, and this is, this would be working with the managers and policymakers to figure out where we can intersect and go, okay, out of all these things that we've, you know, focused on in this paper, um, let's take another step back and say, um, what are the things that we need to take um, from a, um, an impact standpoint? And then which ones are also getting some feedback from policy makers and managers and conservation officers of like, yes, this is great, but we're never going to be able to control that. So maybe we should look at a way to evaluate something else that maybe is an intermediary to that, um, that bigger effect from that technology. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think, you know, you don't want to regulate everything, right? And a lot of, so much of this is just about, as you said, it's about norms and education, you know, and not just for technology, but for everything around fisheries and being a good yep. steward of the resource, right? So, you know, even though so much of this stuff is so new, a lot of kind of the challenges it presents to managers are pretty similar. And, you know, on the other, on the other hand, thinking about it, I mean, a lot of what we've discussed so far is kind of, you know, the quote unquote scary things, right? So higher catch rates, you know, potential issues with all the new plastic baits and everything else out there. Uh, you know, you had mentioned circle hooks, you had mentioned, you know, maybe kind of fish, fish friendlier nets. Uh, you know, I, I think it's worth emphasizing that in addition to kind of the challenges that technology brings, there's also a lot of potential to benefit fisheries conservation and management, right? And I'm wondering if you can maybe shed a little bit of light on, you know, where you view technology as really helping us moving forward to make sure we keep our yeah, fish no, population. Great question. Um, that you're bringing up the nets, for instance, is a, is an important one. Thinking about uh, novel materials um, and ways that we can manufacture nets that um, are even softer and uh, stronger that don't have the capacity or the same capacity to, uh, you know, wipe off slime and abrade fins and all that stuff. Um, I think there's ways that um, th that for one comes to mind. Um, the other 
thing in terms of technologies, um, you know, that we often say, um, you know, don't overfight your fish, right? Even this goes back to braid and going back to the strengths of lines. Um, and, you know, if you're able to um, have a, a, a line that's not going to be able to photodegrade as much or be left in the environment, like we see tons of mono here in Puffer's Pond, and then I'm tripping over it, you know, every time I go for a walk or a run, um, you know, if, if, if technology is allowing us to keep more of our gear with us, opposed to throwing it in the environment, that's better. Um, if it's allowing us to, um, real fish in, um, in a more effective way. So they're not physiologically stressing them as much. We see so many people, you know, you know, fighting fish to exhaustion, worrying about the, the break strength of their line and other things. But, you know, with people playing, you know, fighting with braid these days, like, man, that tough stuff is pretty darn tough. Um, and so, and, and, yeah. And I, I would imagine on the, on the other side too, you know, you're thinking about kind of specific fish impacts, right. But also on like the, the greater population level, right. So you talked about the challenges of, you know, all the apps out there, but that's also an opportunity, right. For getting more information for management. Absolutely. So the apps, in, so we can, we can scrape and mine and look at everything on those apps. People probably don't want to know that. Um, but you're posting stuff on social media and posting stuff on apps and it it provides it provides us with a window into what's being caught if people are actually tagging locations we you know tag you know catch rates um you know from a from a come up keep fish wet perspective like we can start to see how fish are being handled right and that's not even a technology well i mean it's using technology the social media to um, provide insights in terms of how people are adopting best practices for handling and releasing fish. So yes, we, we can totally use that and understand the adoption rates of, of best practices or the, the use of certain technologies. Um, we have to be careful about that too, though, because there's still, there's still some people out there that don't use social media, right? And so, you know, what segment of the population um, of the angling community doesn't use you know, apps aren't just going to be the total panacea for the way we mine, you know, recreational angling data. Um, but it certainly adds a lot um, that uh, that we use and we've done it before. I mean, we've we've used it for some of our research, um, a lot of and, and what what I do and, and and Steve and others also try to do a lot of the the hard science that we do now in terms of evaluating, you know, impacts of catch and release on certain species. Um, and we also try to have a social study, social science study that parallels it. Um, thinking about, you know, how, you know, cause ultimately the science is going to, um, suggest that anglers change their behavior a little bit to minimize impacts on fish. And so we do a parallel study to say, so what are, what do anglers feel is important in terms of how they're interacting with fish? And so that we can ultimately understand how anglers communicate to each other. So then we can, better feed those best practices into the angling community to, to create that change those social norms. So, um, yeah, so there, there are benefits of the technology. Um, and, um, and, and I think we're just at that point, um, where we're evaluating and needing to do those evaluations. So, and, and I think that's also ties back into this question about, um, recreational fisheries versus commercial fisheries. You think about all the different species, that are targeted by recreational anglers versus commercial f fishers, right? And it's it's orders of magnitude different. Um, and so, you know, even as we're thinking about testing, 
you know, squirmy bait that's got scent on it on largemouth bass, you know, and maybe smallmouth bass, but it also a pike may intercept it or a crappie or, you know, and not if it, so. And, and we also, our science identifies that um, there are some species specific differences in terms of the way they respond to, you know, different hooks, different baits, different other things. So it's, I think that leads to the complexity of, of uh, the entire landscape of, of tech and recreational fisheries. So we have talked about a huge kind of swath of what's out there, right? We've talked about social media. We've talked about boat-based electronics, you know, drones, high wattage radar, you know, um, all sorts of new hook and lure and bait technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Can you take your crystal ball out for a second, Andy? What's the next big thing? What do you see as kind of, you know, you guys have obviously spent a lot of time understanding the direction in which a lot of technology has been moving. Wondering if there's kind of a new frontier or a new area that you really see as kind of something that might potentially change the landscape of how we, how we Ooh, consider recreational fishing. <laughs> um, I thought, I thought uh, the crystal ball was going to end with, um, with drones um and then and then watching and then watching now drones that can actually deliver baits out right and uh which you know and, and i think that you know i i thought that was just gonna be i i because I, I was flying drones a number of years ago before people were fishing with them and i love flying drones and i'm just like now i'm looking at it, i'm like wow this thing can actually deliver things you can target bait um you know i think that we've seen a lot of technology advance in terms of the gear itself, um, the reels and the lines, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to see much change. I, my, my sense and my hope is that uh, because of greater environmental awareness uh, more broadly, that maybe that technology is going to change in terms of baits and bait types and hook types um, that are made by manufacturers that are going to maybe uh, make it easier to dehook fish. Um, or, you know, biodegradable soft baits that are more environmentally friendly. Um, you know, I, I hope that's where it's going. And, and the reason why I, I say that is that um, even though anglers can put a lot of pressure on fish stocks, um, they're also the first ones that usually scream and shout when they feel the population starting to, you know, crumble or the catch rate start to go down or, you know, wasn't the same five years ago. And, Yes, some anglers obviously point at, you know, management agencies and if they stock, they need to stock more. And if they, you know, it's somebody else's fault. Um, but, you know, I think maybe that, um, you know, as there's a greater environmental awareness and social conscious about uh, these things, um, that maybe some of that technology, those advancements, what we'll see is um, going to be in the direction where it actually is minimizing impacts as opposed to us having to evaluate all these other technologies in terms of like, okay, how's this one? This one looks really bad. You know what I mean? Like it's just, um, and so I, I don't know if that was the, I, I, I don't think I answered that in a, no, I think, I think it was a good answer. I mean, kind of the way I, the way I heard it was like, you know, we're kind of plateauing in terms of efficiency, right? We've gotten pretty damn good at catching fish and kind of, you know, the logical next step is we're kind of at that, at that point and let's find ways to minimize impacts yeah. of the resource. Right. I mean, that sounds, you know, that sounds like a I pretty had a, good I direction. I had a conversation. I've got a project that's, um, currently going on with, uh, with IGFA and, um, we were, we were having our, 
monthly check-in call and and i forget how we got onto tech and then um these you know the the boat-based electronics and fish finders and uh one of the people i was chatting with talked about how they just got back from a billfish tournament and there's actually sonar that will actually identify and lock in on the billfish and help the boat navigate to follow the billfish right so like and that, i think that's where like wow. i think what we're doing now is getting to the point where we're make that we're honing the technologies and and you know and and I, I you know i don't blame people like there's the innovative side of it like i love to innovate i love to tinker in my basement and build things and and do stuff right um and so you know if you if you you have you know you love fishing and you have this great technology and you've invested millions of dollars in your boat and you're like hey can we pull these systems together and make them work a little bit more efficiently and keep me on that fish? You know? So it's, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, I, I hear where you're coming from. You know, people ask me why I like fishing and I, I, I don't know if it's a canned answer, but kind of where I've landed is often saying, you know, you can learn all the tools and get better and better and kind of, you know, on average, be able to, to, to catch more fish every time you go out. But there's always kind of that chance, right? There's kind of the great equalizer of the, the luck factor and being in the right place at the right time. And I think, you know, it's kind of that balance and certainly the technology kind of changes that balance a little bit. But I think, you know, to your point, uh, you can't blame people for, for wanting to do everything they can and, and take advantage of what's out there. But, you know, definitely it's, it's great to kind of understand the landscape and, and what we're seeing in terms of, uh, of options out there available to fishermen, but also some of the challenges they might bring. So, you know, Dr. Andy Danilchuk from UMass Amherst, thank you so much for, for dropping no by the guide. Thanks, Willie. Enjoyed it. <laughs>